The following message was given to the North Young Adult Group at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Moundsview, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church slash Young Adults. Alright, really excited about a three-part series on moral formation. And I want to start off with three texts just to read. Matthew 5, 14. Christians uh, should not be uh, uh, nervous or scared to talk about good works, uh, but the, the freest people to talk about doing good works. And the Bible has some very beautiful pictures about um, Christians who, who love righteousness. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. <clears throat> Ephesians 2.10 We are God's craft workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're light. We're a workmanship. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers, but blessed is the man who his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So just three pictures, um, and in this series, I want to get towards, we want to move in that direction towards uh, being a tree and being a light and walking in the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. So I just want to lay that out as a beautiful amazing picture uh, for our lives that, as young adults, to cultivate and to head in, in that direction. There has been a distinct shift in our culture's understanding of morality in the last 50 years, and I'm going to talk about that shift as an introduction, and then we'll, we'll, we'll start. Um, typically, cultural shifts take a long time, but this shift has, has taken a very short amount of time. The shift is from, we shifted from what used to be, in our culture, commonly held traditional values. Okay, that, was, that was the norm. And what I mean is um, there were external reference points of morality. There were fixed virtues and fixed character, like honor and courage. Um, what you feel didn't matter as much. It's doing what right, doing what's right is what matters. Um, emotion, emotions were not the primary driving force um, before this shift. There was a sense of moral boundaries, um, so much so that if you ignore these boundaries, such as, let's say, moving in with one's girlfriend or boyfriend, or succumbing to sub substance abuse, or cheating on an exam, or dressing provocatively, 
you would have felt a public sense of disapproval. Um, most people, um, and for sure in the South, went to church. Most people knew Bible stories. There was a cultural ethic, ethical standard that had its roots in Christianity, whether it was genuinely Christian or not. All throughout history, religion has shaped, um, um, by and large, the moral ethic of, of culture. So there was a shift from that, which a lot of us probably might not even remember, to a shift in, um, to individual relativism, which is where we are today, um, and it's primarily driven by the sexual rev revolution. In, in this culture, uh, moral formation is formed um, by freedom of the individual, personal preference, and personal preference. Um, morals are what you want them to be. Be true to yourself, do what feels right, be authentic. Right? So there are three postures, I don't remember if that's slide. Yeah, three postures of morality um, as you see it in our culture. What is moral is what feels right to the individual. There is no preset standard. Um, I determine what's right or wrong. I follow what feels right and what leads to joy to me. So personal happiness is the rule of thumb. Number two, what is moral is what benefits me. If it benefits me or makes me feel good, then it must be right. The end justifies the means. Uh, three, what I find or what I feel is right and moral and what makes me happy should not be questioned. You should never judge anybody. Don't judge my life. I won't judge your life. And if you do judge my life, then you're being, um, you're a hater. Use a modern term, right? And that's the shift. Summarized, this talk is not going to cover everything. General terms, that's the, the shift in morality and moral formation. Now, though this new standard that we're living in right now sounds free and autonomous, do whatever you want, do what feels happy, do what, do what makes you happy, it really isn't that free and autonomous because this framework has developed its own moral code that everyone must follow in our culture in the name of free and autonomous. Nancy Piercy in Love Thy Body says, the new secular orthodoxy is being imposed through virtually all the major social institutions, academia, media, public schools, Hollywood, private corporations, and the law. So what is actually called free and autonomous, it has become a new secular orthodoxy. Um, what has really happened is one standard of morality has been replaced by another standard. And if you don't follow this new standard, you will be shamed. But if you follow it, you will be publicly praised. So she goes on. Those who resist the secular moral revolution have lost jobs, businesses, and teaching positions. Others have been kicked out of graduate school programs, lost the right to be foster parents, been forced to shut down adoption centers, lost their status as campus organizations, and the list of oppressions is like, likely to grow. This is the world we live in as young adults, and following the scriptures will continue to be 
uh, a more costly path for our lives. So we can expect it, and um, that's, that's what we're seeing. And so moral formation now is, uh, morals are formed by feelings and perception. Perception meaning what you do and what you accept must fit into the new secular norms. So as you're forming morality, there is a sense of perception. What are others going to think? Are others going to approve? Is, is the secular world going to approve? Um, and as a result, young adults typically will feel more social shame rather than guilt before God. Because morality is now fundamentally formed by the way others are perceiving you. So because YAs primarily feel social shame, they are thus more concerned with forming their lives around the perception of others than forming their lives in line with the Holy God and His glory. This is why young adults are far more concerned with self-image, social justice, saving the environment, than with sexual purity and holy living before God. David Cetron notes, I'm, I'm looking here at the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt implies failure to conform to God's standards described in his revelatory word. Shame, on the other hand, implies failure to meet others' expectations, which are continually, is a continually shifting standard based on social context. He goes on, holiness can seem arbitrary and unnecessary when they, young adults, wish to focus instead on the need to make a difference in the world or to fight social justice. Who cares who you are sleeping with when you are solving global warming in your free time? So instead of a, a code of moral values that existed to restrain self-indulgence, morality now functions to sanction and promote self-indulgence and self-interest. Um, there are some common results of this shift. Um, like I said, I think the sexual revolution is the driving force. And so we definitely see this in sexuality. The understanding that what I feel or desire governs my sexuality. If I desire someone of the same sex, I can pursue that. If I desire to be a girl when I'm a guy, then I'm allowed to pursue that. Don't judge me, it's what makes me happy. Um, this doesn't only apply to the LGBTQ movement, but also the desires for singles or those outside of the marriage covenant to have premarital sex or for individuals to look at porn merely because that is the way you are wired. So this is, I think that's the, the driving force of the secular orthodoxy. I think it also shows itself in, in abortion, in evangelism, um, and in a host of other ways. Now those are, I call them common results of this movement because I think they're easy to spot. Um, there are, I think, more uncommon, uncommon results of this movement. So what I'm trying to get out in this section, get at in this section is that all of us are influenced by our culture, right? Um, and I don't think all of us are as far 
as those common results I just listed, right? Um, and what I want to try to at least pinpoint is, are there areas in between that were influenced by in some way? And at least to pinpoint some of them so that we can recognize. And so the main one is um, an attitude of exploration and experience um, among young adults. So let me try to describe what I mean by that. I think young adults now face um, a space and culture and in the season of life that highlights exploration. There's a shift from following and being committed to the standards that were imposed on you by your family and by your church. Um, a shift from that to a need to personalize your own moral standards by exploring the world. Okay, so you're an adult now, which means you're looking back at how you were raised in your church um, and in your family, and you need to make those things your own or leave those things, right? So that's kind of the stage of life we're at. We're, we're setting our, our standards. Um, and I think there's a culture now of exploration. Um, you need to explore the world and experience the world in order for you to be able to, to uh, set standards in stone for yourself. And so young adults need to test the waters on music, dress, church choices, dating partners, etc. And no one should invade your exploration of these things. Options need to be kept open in order to explore these areas and come up with your own system that works for you. As a result, any sort of community or accountability is abandoned or held in high suspicion. That's kind of the things that we're trying to get at here. And I think this shows itself with just general intellect as well. Um, you, young adults now come to realize, in an age of internet and information, that there are logical opposing views to what your family and church taught you growing up. This begins to make a young adult think that everyone has their own legitimate views on things, and you start to conclude that there is no right way. To quote David Cetron again, in a, in a young adult's mind, authorities no longer hold the answers, but are groping for truth along with the rest of the world. Um, and as a result, you can easily come to start to view your own upbringing as narrow and old-fashioned, and more importantly, the scriptures with it. So begins a season of exploration in order to be educated and develop your own worldview and morals. And in order to do that, you have to separate from your narrow upbringing and community. So I think that's a more subtle shift that young adults can take. And I think that happens first before, if, if a Christian is gonna go from following the scriptures to full-blown sexual revolution, I think there's more subtle shifts that can happen that we, we uh, should be wary of and at least be able to, to notice. Um, this idea of exploration uh, can leave young adults paralyzed or uncontrolled or unconventional as they follow the need to explore just about anything in the world. And I think this shift has effects on all areas of life. I think young adults can struggle to maintain any deep friendships. They can struggle to commit to any church. 
They church hop and explore churches, and even dating. As adulthood is postponed until later and later, as young adults spend more and more time exploring the endless expanse of ideas with absolutely no manual to guide them. And going back to dating, D.A. Carson writes, when premarital sex is more common than not, when countless numbers of young men scarcely know how to shoulder responsibilities until they are in their 30s, quote, or emphasis, and certainly do not know how to woo and win a wife with honor because they are still looking over their shoulders to see if something nicer is coming along behind them. So that's a, that's a window into how the, the moral, your, your moral shift can affect the way you live your life in, I think, a lot of areas. I'm going to be talking about some of the, the pitfalls and results of this as we go along. Um, uh, one of them is uh, you can head the roots of legalism or strict morality, um, following the laws, obeying the rules, despite what you feel. Um, so if you hit this world of exploration, like there are so many ideas and views, you can get paralyzed and create strict boundaries. Um, that's, that's one way that you can deal with it. Another one is um, you could be true to yourself, do what feels right, be authentic. Um, and the problem with that is there's no guarantee of any moral excellence if you just let your heart free. And so I think that's enough for introduction. I just want to, I want to do my best to just, here's, here's a window, and I think, into the world that we live in as young adults. And as I go through now, I think um, a biblical way of growing in moral formation, to have that in mind, that's, that's where we live. And so we'll do uh, three lessons on this. Um, I think my, I haven't finished my whole outline, but generally it's gonna go in, in this sense. Uh, you need to know why you exist. Um, you need to be saved and transformed from the inside out. Um, strict morals can put boundaries around the beast of depravity, but it cannot change the heart. It cannot change the heart. It doesn't have the, the law can't do that. Um, or relativism is basically remove those boundaries and you just let the beast free. And what I'm going to try to unpack is um, both of those don't work. You need the heart changed uh, through the gospel, through new birth. And that's going to be the main point of today's lesson. So the first step in the path of moral formation is to know why you were created. I mean, this is so important. Morals come from a worldview. So we've got to start at the beginning. You cannot detach the conversation of morality from the conversation of why you exist. So for example, um, this is an iPhone, and if I, I'm stealing this from Tim Keller, if I start to hammer a nail and my phone breaks, and I say, I'm determining whether it's a good or bad phone, I say it's bad, well, someone might say, it's not made to hammer a nail. And so that's a bad framework for determining whether your phone is good or bad. So it is with your life. How do you know if you're good or bad. Well, it, you cannot detach that conversation 
from the purpose of your existence. Which, at Bethlehem, we are very aware of. It's, right? We have a lot of John Piper catchphrases around here. We exist to bring glory to God by treasuring and obeying Him. That's why we exist. Exist to bring glory to God. And that's over. That's a very sweeping statement. To bring glory to God by mainly by treasuring Him. I think that obedience overflows from that. To not operate in accordance with your purpose is to use an iPhone like a hammer. Or, I was trying to think of an analogy for this, you can do good things that accord with, with the Bible and yet not be doing it for the purpose that you were created, right? So there's that category. So 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink, do all to the glory of God. That's why we exist. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So your moral choices and dispositions should not be primarily shaped by others' perceptions of you or the cultural currents that are constantly changing, or your upbringing, or your feelings, or anything, but by what corresponds with your purpose in the world, which is to glorify God. That's your, that should shape um, your moral choices and dispositions. And just to go further with Piper phrases, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So what makes God look really good is when our hearts treasure him above anything in the world, right? That's what makes him look like what he really is, beautiful and glorious. Now, if morality needs to head in that direction, this means that we need to know God, who he is, how to please him, and what his instructions are as the creator. He didn't create us without a manual, right? And I, I wish I could just, I want to do a whole lesson on um, just the relevance of scripture. And the, the, I think the scriptures are incredibly relevant for every scenario. The word is the fixed position in which to navigate the sea of cultural currents. And I'm going to assume that that's, where we're at during this whole series. Okay. Um, the Bible is our manual for how to please God, to know how to please God, and to navigate the sea of cultural currents. Um, now, there are two barriers that I'm going to list that are uh, to living for our purpose. Number one is we are sinners and God is holy. We just sang it, right? Holy, holy, holy. We are sinners and God is holy. And therefore, we have guilt and shame. We are guilty before God. And with that guilt and shame, we are always constantly searching for ways to fill that void. This is the state of people who are not saved. Always searching to fill that void of guilt and shame for our sin before God. Some do it by seeking pleasure in anything they can find. Some do it by having strict legalistic lifestyles. 
Some do it for warring for social justice, and some do it by self-image, like dieting, exercise, social media presence. Some of these ways function to hide from the guilt, and others function to try to overcome the guilt with a certain good lifestyle. These are the results of the barrier of our sin that keeps us from functioning according to the purpose to glorify God with our lives. And the second one is we are not wired towards God in our affections. We don't love Him. Our desires are contrary to God's desires, and therefore we don't want to obey Him. There are things in our life that we want that would make us happy, that would not make God happy. These are the desires of the flesh, which are contrary to God. And so those are two barriers. So, if God has made a way to overcome those barriers, he's revealed it through the word. And so the second step is that we need to put our trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. This is the first step. Um, active step in moral formation. Knowing why we exist and then putting our trust in the work of Christ on the cross. And I just want to walk through um, to finish four ways um, that the gospel affects our moral formation. And I could do a lot more, but um, I think this would be enough. Number one, the cross absorbs God's wrath and obtains forgiveness of sins so that you now can pursue holiness in absolute freedom. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 10. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So you now can pursue holiness without the fear of being under the wrath of God as you grow in sanctification. That's really significant. Jesus absorbs all of God's wrath on the cross, setting you free to pursue morality without the guilt and the shame. Number two, the cross qualifies you to share in the inheritance apart from any works. Colossians 1.12 this is one of my favorite lines. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. God qualifies you. Don't work to try to qualify yourself before God. You will never earn it, and you will get very tired of trying to earn it. The credentials you need to meet in order to qualify with the Holy God, are infinitely too high for you and for me. God has qualified you to share in the inheritance through Jesus. On the, on the qualification section of your application to the inheritance of heaven, across the requirements section is written Jesus. He's what qualifies you. It's better than any PhD, better than any accomplishment, and better than 10,000 good deeds. So lift that burden off yourself and take his burden, which is much lighter. Jesus qualifies you 
to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It's amazing. Number three, the gospel makes you alive to serve God. Yeah, Ephesians, Colossians 2.13, you were dead in your trespasses, you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And he did it by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So the record of debt that each one of you must pay has legal demands for the sins you've committed before God. Instead of waving that in your face and condemning you, it's set aside and nailed to the cross. And you are made alive, new life. You now love God, obey God, desire God, and live for God. There's life in you. You were once dead. You did not love God. You did not desire God. You were dead. And God made you alive in Christ. And he does this through the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So as we behold his glory, the Spirit transforms us. That's life, new life. You must be born again. That's the Spirit. And now we're alive. Ephesians 2.10, where his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has, has works prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And when he creates us through the gospel... We are gathered and oriented in our minds and our affections by God to the correct path to walk in. That's new life. We are created and reoriented with, in our mind and affections, to walk in the works that God has prepared for us. Those not saved are aimlessly walking with, um, and working with no correct orientation. Because they're dead. That's number three. Number four. God cleanses the conscience so that when our conscience condemns us, we don't turn to duty or shame, but to the cross. Mm -hmm. Hebrews 9.13, if, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, right, that's Old Testament, right, kill the animal, sprinkle the blood, you're clean, if, if animals did that, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So our, our conscience is cleansed by the blood of Christ so that when it, when it condemns us, when we don't turn, when it condemns us when we, when we sin, we don't turn to duty or shame or to suppressing it through whatever means that you suppress those things, you turn to Christ and you are, you are cleansed and you experience the cleanness that comes from Jesus. So those are four ways that the gospel affects your moral formation.
Um, if you don't, if you are not grounded in the gospel, I think you will either become a self-righteous, proud legalist, like the Pharisee in the parable. Remember a Pharisee and a tax collector go up to pray? One trusted in himself that he was righteous and looked with contempt on others. He's looking horizontally. You will either become self-righteous, proud legalist. Two, you will be a shame-ridden stumbler, never measuring up. Three, you will do whatever you want, living your life recklessly, indulging in every passion of the flesh. Or four, what you do, no matter how good, will have no ultimate or productive purpose or consequence because you are not doing it for the glory of God. The starting point for a life of virtue and morality is the cross. The cross is where all your disobedience, sin, failed attempts, and filth goes to die. The cross is where you obtain Christ's righteousness in all of its spotless splendor and purity and perfection and completeness. The cross is where you are forgiven. It's where you get a new heart. It's where you become a new creation. It's where the Spirit is given to indwell you and give you new inclinages, new desires, new loves, all that accord with the heart of God himself. The starting point is not your feelings or a set of strict rules to follow. The starting point is not comparing yourself to others to please them or to get the upper hand. The starting point is becoming a new creation at the cross. It doesn't, I have other examples, it doesn't begin with self-image improvement, or social media likes, or not drinking and smoking, or with filling your life with, with countless pleasures, but with repentance and faith in Christ. Don't try to outwork your sin. Repent of your sin at the cross. There and only there will you find the freedom and peace to begin the journey of moral formation. So I'll end with Romans 6, 12. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't let that happen. Do not present your members, any of them. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God Here's the key. As those who have been brought from death to life. Mm -hmm. And present your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And so as we begin this series, we begin by looking to Jesus for our justification, for the forgiveness of our sins, for a new heart, and to become a new creation. And here we go for the starting point of a life of pursuing virtue and morality so that we would be like a tree planted by streams of water or, or like the light of the world that people see and give glory to God for your good works, mm -hmm. right? The salt of the earth. It's a beautiful thing. So go to the cross. Look to Jesus. That's our starting point. So let's go to him now. Father, I thank you for your word. It is a light shining on a dark world. And with it, we see with clarity where freedom is found. And it's found in Jesus. And so we look to you. We repent of our sins.
they are many, they are endless, they condemn us, but we look to Jesus where there is freedom, where there is forgiveness, where there is justification. And I ask that you would help us to continually come to the cross in repentance and in faith, to not pursue sin, to not trust in ourselves and our own righteousness, to not try to work to make ourselves feel good about ourselves, to not look to comparing ourselves with others in order to feel good about ourselves, but to come in repentance boldly at the foot of the cross to experience freedom and our, conscious, our conscience being cleansed by the blood of Christ. So I ask that you would help us with that. Help us to encourage one another that with that as we interact and as we talk and as we share about things we're struggling with. Help us to encourage each other to look to Jesus, to repent of our sin, and to experience your forgiveness and your freedom. Do this through the Holy Spirit who you have given to us to lead us in that direction. Transform us from one image one degree of glory to the next through the Holy Spirit by giving us a clear picture of Jesus and his work on the cross and his beauty and his glory. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the Young Adult Ministry at Bethlehem Baptist Church, North Campus in Moundsview, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at bethlehem.church slash young adults.